Stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, visit www.3cr.org.au. And welcome to the Radioactive Show, produced at the studios of 3CR Melbourne and heard nationally on the Community Radio Network. Hello and welcome to the Radioactive Show. I'm Michaela and on today's program we'll be getting an update on the proposed nuclear waste dump in South Australia. So the campaign continues to heat up with legal action by the Bangala Traditional Owner Group putting on hold a community ballot that was set to start on Monday the 20th of August. And with prolonged heat waves raising temperatures across Europe, we'll be hearing about the most recent wave of nuclear power plant shutdowns due to the extreme weather. First up, I'm speaking with Friends of the Earth's Nuclear Free Collective Coordinator, A.C. Hunter, who had just returned from campaign visits to South Australia and Western Australia. Well, you've just returned from some travels to two of the nuclear hotspots. Could you give us a little update on your impressions, coming from Melbourne especially, what the feeling is like on the ground? I went over in the first week of August. It was a really full-on time over there. I just realised how much is going on there with the votes coming up and Matt Canavan's comment that he wants a decision by the end of the year and before the election. Um, And they're really under pressure to convince people, um, like inform people to start with, that it's going on and that it's important and they need to be involved and then convince them that... um, putting nuclear waste in a remote location in South Australia is a a bad idea, whether it's in the Flinders or in Kimber. Um, And yeah, it was really, it took me aback a bit. I think we have quite an active group in Melbourne and there's a lot of people who've been around a while. Um, And in Adelaide, there's just so much work to do and there's not as many bodies on the ground Yeah, and it really reinforced for me how important it is for this national issue to be picked up by groups across Australia to support those people in Adelaide who are fighting it, and Port Augusta and Kimber and Hawker who are fighting on the ground um, to stop the federal government from forcing, um, you know, the whole nation's nuclear waste onto these small communities. And then it was a bit of a whirlwind. I left there. That was during the... um, the final hearing for the Senate inquiry into the process for site selection for the nuclear waste dump. Um, and, yeah, followed that with the with the Adelaide crew, uh, which was interesting to, to witness from there and their reactions. Um, and then left and went over to Western Australia for the uh, Walkajura Walkabout. Walkajura Walkabout. Um, it's the seventh one this year. They were all, I mean, it's a real joy to be out there and out on country. Um, We hit out um, on the first day driving to Kalgoorlie and stopping off at Wangatha Binney to see um, Uncle Geoffrey Stokes and his partner Christine, who are just amazing long-term anti-nuke activists and, um, 
yeah, amazing, um, like Aboriginal rights activists as well, obviously. Um, and yeah, that kind of ongoing relationships that have built up over the years um, through WAMFA and through the Walkajira walkabout um, with people who are on the ground and fighting it on their country um, and then to bring lots of new people out there um, to see it. So then, yeah, head up to Leonora, stop off and say hello to Mob there and then all the way up to Waluna, um, which is one of the sites of a proposed uranium mine and then the first week walking is from that site to Yuleri, which is another site um, for a proposed uranium mine. And of course at Yuleri, um, the the major action, I mean, it's they've been going 40 years, the local uh, Wongai community fighting to stop the uranium being dug up at Yuleri, which is a sacred site and shouldn't be disturbed, according to them. Um and the latest kind of incarnation of um, trying to stop that has been three traditional owners and the Conservation Council of WA taking a court case um, against the state and Cameco um, to challenge state environmental approval for that site. Um, yeah, it's talking to them. It's a massive financial burden, like as well as being like a lot of time and a lot of emotion and a lot of kind of physical work that goes into it. There's also this, um, they've had the court costs and the first, they went through, um, they had a court case earlier this year, which they lost, which they're now um, appealing and waiting for a hearing date for that. And But they had court costs awarded against them of $65,000. So it's massively expensive. That's not even including their costs. Um, yeah, and it just really reinforced for me that need. God, all the fundraising we do. <laughs> it's really important. It really, um, yeah, it's really, it makes a difference for people to be able to take on um, these really big kind of um, tasks of, you know, taking an international uranium miner and a state government to court. Um, yeah. My understanding is um, that it's going to take a long time. Yeah. Like um, they'll probably get a date by the end of the year or possibly in the first half of next year on um, their appeal against the original decision. Um, and then it's likely if they win that, that Cameco would appeal against that decision. And if they lose that, there would be an absolutely horrendous kind of precedent um, because what they're arguing is that the state minister cannot... Um, knowingly cause the extinction of species in approving that mine. And that's actually a really dangerous precedent if it stands. Mm -hmm. um, so then it would be a case of them appealing if they lost this next appeal. Um, and that would go to the High Court of Australia. At the moment, it's with the Supreme Court in WA, but it would go on to the National um, High Court um, if they appeal that decision. So they're looking between six months and potentially years of litigation. It's, um, yeah, as I say, it's a massive task. Um, and it's not the only kind of approach that they're going in trying to stop these mines. There's still the kind of community campaign. They're doing public awareness. They're um, lobbying um, Labour, the Labour government in WA to stick firm, um, really 
um, making sure there's a lot of conditions. The three mines or the four mines each have state um, approval, but there's a lot of conditions for each of those mines and a lot of um, kind of dates will come up over time that they have to meet certain um, conditions under those approvals. We'll be watching them every step of the way and pulling them up if they miss a date or if they have failed in whatever the condition is and potentially will lose their approval that way. It's it's a multi-pranged kind of approach, and no doubt it'll be successful one way or another. Yep. Excellent. <laughs> um, and so just returning to what's happening in South Australia, the Nuclear Free Collective has just put a call out for people to send in letters to Matt Canavan calling for an end to the current process. Can you tell us a little bit about that action and what you're hoping to achieve with it? Yeah, sure. So we've been speaking up a lot about how incredibly crappy the process is for site selection. It's really um, been divisive in communities. It's not evidence-based. It's not world's best practice. It's really, um, it's been a destructive and um, not, very honest kind of approach to finding the site. Um, we've been doing that for years, um, but it's all coming to a head with Matt Canavan pushing for site selection by the end of the year, choosing between Kimber or the one close, uh, Bandiuta, close to um, Hawker in the Flinders. Um, that, like we had the Senate inquiry recently, which came up with kind of results that it was clear that there is, you know, the Greens described it as a deeply flawed process um, and there's clearly things wanting there. We took that sort of opportunity to jump on that bad wagon to put pressure on Matt Canavan to stop the process. Um, so through our Friends of the Earth website, we have set up a um, an email that you can put your details into they will automatically get sent out to Matt Canavan just um, bullet pointing a few of the issues that there is with the site selection process um, at the same time so this week we've also seen that um, the Bangala people have um, taken legal action to try and delay the the vote or at least to try and be involved in the vote so at the moment um, Bangala who are the traditional owner or have the native title for the Kimber region, um, and Adyamanya, who have um, native title for over the um, Bandiuta site. Each of those groups have been excluded from the community ballot that Matt Canavan is going to use to show broad community support. Um, the Bandiuta, I'm sorry, the Bangala um, legal case that they're taking um, states that actually... Um, Bangala people who are excluded from the vote at Kimber but who have native title rights are being um, racially discriminated against because people who don't live in the area but who have property rights in that area, property ownership in that area can vote in it. But these um, Bangala people who have native title rights which is a form of um, um, ownership or connection to country, are excluded from the vote if they live outside the area. And that's actually um, discriminating against them because their rights are Aboriginal rights, um, not for any other reason. 
Um, so yeah, that case has actually put the whole thing on ice. So the community ballot is currently um, n- um, being delayed until that goes through the courts. Um, for us, it really reinforces that the process is flawed. It's not. It's not working. Um, you know, if it's got to the point that the the ballot's just about to start and they they're trying to battle off legal action, there's a clear problem there. Um, yeah, so we thought it was a perfect time to um, start out this online action, and we're inviting people to take part in the action by getting onto Faux uh, Australia's website. It's www.foe.org.au forward slash process underscore not underscore postcode. Um, and yeah, that takes you through to an online email action, which will automatically send an email to Matt Canavan um, asking him to stop the current process and reassess where we should go from here. You're listening to the Radioactive show heard across the country thanks to the Community Radio Network. And we were just speaking with AC Hunter, getting a couple of updates from Western Australia and South Australia. As you heard, on Friday 17th of August, we received the announcement that the community vote on the proposed nuclear waste dump near Kimber had been delayed. So the Bangala people, traditional owners of much of the Eyre Peninsula, won a court injunction to halt the vote, and that was in South Australia's Supreme Court, arguing that it contravened the Racial Discrimination Act. Um, A spokesperson for the Department of Industry, Innovation and Science said that uh, the department has spoken with the respective locals and they've agreed to suspend the proposed ballots for both nominated sites at Kimba and Wallabadina Station until the matter's resolved and the case is scheduled to be heard by the Supreme Court of South Australia on Thursday 23rd of August. So on next week's show we'll have some more news on that And we'll also be looking closer into the findings of the South Australia Senate Economics References Inquiry into the National Radioactive Waste Management Facility. And we're already concerned that the recommendations made don't address the concerns raised about the deeply flawed process. Yeah, so please jump in and send a letter. And if you'd like to contribute to the Western Australian campaign to cover their legal costs, you can go to chuffed.org forward slash project forward slash Yaliri court case. Next up, we'll go to an interview by Meg Kimber and Kevin Healy from 3CR City Limits that looks at the precarious future for nuclear energy in Europe. And they're speaking with the Australian Conservation Foundation's nuclear-free campaigner, Dave Sweeney. France closed down nuclear power plants last week because it got too hot, the, the extreme weather. And I just kept wondering, why would they do that? We know the, the, uh, we know the obvious dangers with uranium and nuclear power, but what, what, what especially is the danger if the, if the sun suddenly gets pretty hot? It's, um, it's an interesting one, and it's, it's not just France, actually. Right across Europe, like many listeners will be aware, it's been a particularly hot summer. Temperatures are 6 to 10 degrees above average right across the continent. Um, and the place is sweltering. And from France to Finland, uh, Sweden to Spain, they've been shutting reactors. Mm-hmm. Uh, and basically it's about access to water. They haven't got access to water to maintain uh, safe cooling uh, aspects or the other dimension is 
they are releasing um, uh, heated water which has of, of a temperature and there's not sufficient dilution in rivers to uh, turn that into anything but uh, scolds that uh, kills aquaculture fish and causes all sorts of damage. So they either haven't got enough water or they've got too much hot water for whatever it is, either of those two reasons, there's reactors that at this peak time have been shut in Spain, Sweden, France, Finland. Uh, there's been cutbacks in Germany, Switzerland and other nations. And nuclear power has, um, like, seriously been found to be wanting when, you know, community demand is, is high and present. When the sun does shine and the wind does blow. Exactly. Like, this whole thing of, of nuclear power is... Uh, environmentally friendly. Um, I don't know how that can be for an instant sustained when it creates a hundred to 300,000 year waste. And then the other one of like that it is secure baseload power. What this has shown is that it is highly centralised um, and there are factors that can knock it offline, which takes out an enormous amount of energy production and energy planning. Mm. So, so if they don't get this water, they have to close If they didn't, because they're not getting the water, if they, they would therefore, if they kept going, have something of a meltdown or something, would they? Yeah, that's right. Like um, they, they, nuclear power, um, basically what you do is you have a controlled chain reaction. You have a controlled massive release of neutrons. Atoms split in a fast-tracked and hurried way. They bash around. They release heat. When you uh, do that in a controlled fission um, reactor, you produce large uh, amounts of heat. And that's, that's then used to turn water to steam to drive a turbine. So it's effectively a big kettle. Um, and if you don't have water uh, for maintaining cooling, um, that kettle, that element in that kettle overheats and, uh, and it goes. And we can have that, you know, that, that's the basic uh, recipe or makings of a, of a meltdown. So what they need to do in the absence of that, and, you know, the, the good news about this is at least it's predictable. It wasn't like a, a, a Fukushima. This was predictable. They could see it coming, river levels, river levels, were falling, water access was falling, so they can uh, manage uh, a shutdown. And they, they basically just put rods to absorb uh, either carbon or graphite rods to absorb those extra neutrons, and they put those control, uh, control rods down between the hot fuel rods. And it acts sort of like a blanket, Kevin. It sort of damps down the whole thing. Now, there's still heat, uh, but it's at a significantly or much lower rate. Uh, it's much more manageable, controllable. Um, but it's taken the edge off the meltdown aspect, absolutely. But what it's shown is the vulnerabilities of, of that highly centralised and risky system. Mm. And water is such a precious resource. How much, uh, is there an estimate on how much water nuclear power production uses in Europe? Or yeah, yeah, look, that's a really good question, mm. Megan. And, and there are all sorts of figures around water consumption. It is very thirsty. It uses a hell of a lot mm. of water. Um, and I saw something uh, the other day just on this, a new report uh, from a US-based uh, water utility, and it said that um, I think it's fully 48% of river underground and lake water mm. extracted and used in the US is used to cool... Uh, thermal electricity, coal wow. and nuclear plants. Wow. So that's half of the water in the state mm. is going into pipes to make electricity. Um, it would be, I imagine, comparable in Europe, um, mm. but it is a very thirsty industry. It's also an impact at all stages of this industry um, that um, 
that is underestimated. You know, like we, we in Australia don't have domestic nuclear power and that's because people have resisted it well and truly to the point where the market has also said it's not viable. Mm. But, um, but, you know, like we have uranium mines mm. and uranium mining is very thirsty. The Olympic Dam mine, the BHP Billison, or BHP now, mine in South Australia, uh, it's got a licence for 32 million litres of water a day. Ancient water, 10,000 years old from the, from the Great Artesian Basin, each and every day. How much does it pay for that, uh, Dave? Uh, next to nothing. In fact, that is nothing. It's mm. gratis. They pay for it in the trickle-down effect. <laughs> 32 million <laughs> litres of water each and every day is a pretty big trickle in my book. Wow. And, you know, when you're looking at, when you're looking at Western uh, New South Wales and Western Queensland, when you're looking at uh, drought-affecting people all yeah. around this country and then people are saying, well, maybe we should cut foreign aid, well, yeah. maybe first and foremost we should cut three access to massive utilities for water yeah. and to the mining industry for both contaminating and consuming vast amounts of water. That's a long way from Europe. <laughs> it's, it's sort of there's these linkages here of mm. contamination, consumption, respect and protection. But that heated water you talk about, that must cause ongoing environmental damage, mustn't it? Yeah, it does. It works on the principle, basically, Kevin, that um, of, you know, uh, dilution. So you put hot water into... The river, the river's flowing pretty well. Uh, hot water turns to warm water. It's not too much of a problem. But what happens is if there's any variables, um, it is a significant problem. It can alter marine balance. It can, uh, it can reduce species breeding. It can damage aquaculture and other uses. It can do all sorts of things. So we see weird situations like a little bit mangarish Japanese in, in some of the more bizarre ones like, you know, massive... Um, massive increases in populations of jellyfish and massive decreases in populations of other marine creatures mm. around nuclear reactor outfall points. So, it's, mm. um, again, it's one of the scores of sort of unintended consequence or, or unrecognised impacts and implications of this industry. And what is the effect in um, Europe in terms of people's access to electricity, just uh, day-to-day electricity use. Has there been any blackouts and things like that? Yeah, there have been. There've been it's been more brownouts, Meg, than black yeah. at the moment. Um, and they've been, you know, they've been shunning to um, prioritising to, you know, uh, key sectors and that sort of stuff. So mm. they've managed it reasonably well. Mm. But I think what it shows is, like, this is not, this is, uh, what we have is, is uh, climate chickens coming home to roost. This is, mm. this is climate change happening. Mm. Now, people might poo-poo that and say this is alarmist, extremist, blah, blah. But the reality is... Um, we are moving into an increasingly unpredictable, unstable um, and uh, testing the climate for the, our planet. Mm. And, uh, and so that will be the new norm in Europe. So I think over time, um, European authorities are going to have to look at how they, how they best cope with that and, and a, a clear pathway forward. And many are embracing it. Very many are embracing it as diverse, deployable, renewable energy systems that can be quickly rolled out and quickly rolled back, mm. um, rather than the the big capital costs, the big startup costs, and the the dependence on external factors of mm. coal and nuclear. Mm. Well, that report that came out last week, trajectories of the Earth system in the Anthropocene, um, which was done by scientists around the world. One of them was Will Stephan from Australia, but it it says now um, it, it's exponentially increasing and we're rising by 0.17 degrees every 10 years so we're looking at a pretty catastrophic sort of future yeah look at there's, there's no question about it when when people say you know climate change is here it's ugly it's urgent like that they're not slogans that's the reality of it we are in a country now that is gripped in drought um you know people uh victorian water authorities have just put in a massive order for desal water because we haven't had enough rain 
Western New South Wales and, and Queensland, I'm not sure if people have seen the images, but they're stark and deeply, mm. deeply disturbing. And, um, you know, all around the world, like Europe's sweltering, um, we're thirsty, um, and places are getting uh, uh, traditional patterns, expected patterns of weather are being interrupted, and for the first part, that's news, and wow, isn't this odd? And then I think what we need to accept is this is the new reality, and we need to do two things on that. We need to get into active mitigation, coping and new strategies for how we deal with that, how we live with that. Mm. And we need to actively, aggressively, in a, in a combat way, we need to drop carbon emissions. And that is not by jumping from fire, frying pan to fire with, with embracing nuclear. It's flawed, deficient and rubbish. Um, we, we need to aggressively roll out energy conservation, energy efficiency, but particularly renewable energies. We need to de- generate it cleaner and use it smarter. Mm-hmm. Is there anywhere in Europe that you, that is is doing best practice in terms of using renewables? Yeah, look, there are lots of really positive things, and mm-hmm. that's the good side. That's the good side of this. Like mm-hmm. it is, there is a real, very valid gloom and doom side. There mm-hmm. is also a very bright and positive side. Um, technological fixes um, are not going to be the be all and end all, but they buy time and mm-hmm. they change. They change the story to a fair degree. There's some wonderful stuff going on. And, uh, you know, there's lots of heart in countries, uh, particularly Germany, mm. where, you know, fifth largest industrial power, fifth largest e- economy in the world, and it is moving away. It's completely on track to move away in the next few years from reliance on nuclear. It has embraced renewables. It is pumping out renewables at a rate using its production of electricity through solar power in Germany, which is hot now but cold a lot, mm. cloudy a lot. It's 10 times Australia's. They're just mm. pumping it out. Mm. And there's lots of very, very positive things on the go. What it actually comes down to, as it does so often in so many ways across so many sectors, is it comes down to who makes the choices and for whose benefit. And again and again, we're seeing choices made for the most narrow and ideological of benefits, not in a national or an international or a, or a public interest, but in a private interest and in the most skewed version of what constitutes private interest, or simply because the decision-makers and shapers can't see beyond what they've always done. They've got this pathway dependency. And we see it across a whole range of issues, and particularly when it comes to funding. Um, and, and, you know, the, the problems that we face in relation to renewable energy around the world stepping up and taking a massive increase in load and what it's doing now, mm. uh, they're, they're not technical. They're mm. political mm. and they're, they're institutional and political barriers. They're not technical limitations or constraints. So we need to say to the policymakers and politicians that this is not acceptable. These impacts are real, hurting people, and we need to change the way we do this. That was Dave Sweeney, nuclear-free campaigner with the Australian Conservation Foundation, in conversation with Kevin Healy and Meg Kimber from City Limits. Thanks so much to all our guests on the show today and to the Community Radio Network for broadcasting the show right across the country. The Radioactive Show was produced in the studios of 3CR on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri of the Kulin Nation in Nam, Melbourne. Hope you've enjoyed today's show. If you have any feedback or questions for us, you can get in contact on Radioactive Show 3CR at gmail.com or you can check out our Facebook page for all the links to what we've talked about on today's show. You can find the podcasts of all our previous shows at 3cr.org.au forward slash radioactive. 
Thanks again and tune in again next week for more news and views on nuclear peace and energy issues. When I'm looking at for country, country looks out for me.